Could you please say something about how women's spiritual development is valued and represented in the teachings of the Buddha? Thank you. Maybe the place to start is just to say a little bit about what the Buddha said about this, and that is that um, it doesn't make any difference whether you're a man or a woman um, when it comes to practicing Dhamma. So there's no philosophical bias uh, in Buddha's teachings. In fact, the Buddha was really um, totally radical in this area uh, by making sure that his teachings were available, freely available, to everybody, men and women, all classes of society. You're probably aware of the Brahmanical traditions in India and the class system and, and can imagine if you're not familiar with the way that those in the higher echelons are, were kind of held on to the secret and best teachings for themselves and, and the kind of the lower plebs didn't get very much. And uh, the Buddha spoke out against that and it was very clear that when it came to having access to his teaching was available for everybody and, in, in, and particularly with regards to the language that was used he, he resisted any attempt to um, monopolize the teachings or to make the teachings available for an exclusive uh, minority so that's the principle, that's the basic, uh, the place that the Buddhist teachings begin. Uh, but then there are conventions and traditions, of course, and uh, cultural contexts. And uh, so you, uh, if you've visited Asian countries or Buddhist countries, you can see what goes on there for, for women. Um, and then, of course, in our situation here, there's the... Uh, the conventional presentation of Buddhist teachings where you have the monastic sangha uh, with the monks and then the nuns. And, and uh, I think, the, for me anyway, the dominant uh, characteristic of what, of, of what goes on there in the presentation or representation is cultural. What goes on, for instance, in Tibet or what goes on in China or what goes on in Thailand is not necessarily going to go on here. And so, thankfully, we have a very uh, well-established, I would say, uh, nuns community uh, in, in Britain. Uh, how many years is it now? It's 20-something years. Uh, the senior nuns, Ajahn Chandasiri, Ajahn Sundra, have been there. And then uh, many other nuns have joined the community. And these days, 
there is, in fact, a, a much bigger waiting list for the nuns' community than there is for the monks' community. So that's striving, and I would say, personally, very, very inspiring. There is probably everybody who's been around the Buddhist world knows uh, all sorts of discussions about uh, the fully ordained nuns' community, bhikkhunis, and, and whether they should be reinstigated again or not. And there's going to be a conference in Hamburg in sometime later this year, September, I think, maybe, or uh, I think uh, inspired by the Dalai Lama to have a discussion about this. And although our nuns uh, are technically not considered as uh, bhikkhunis or, or bhikshunis in the Mahayana tradition, uh, they're technically referred to as sila duras or upholders of sila, and they technically keep to ten precepts. That doesn't mean to say that in any way they're limited from opportunities for practice. And indeed, uh, many women from other monastic traditions, Buddhist monastic traditions, Chinese, Tibetan, and Korean, and so on, have come to stay with our nuns, and our nun situation is, is considered very enviable by them because the the support, the level of support that is given to them and the degree of respect that is given to them. And clearly the opportunities for practice are uh, incomparable, really, in the Buddhist world. Our, our nuns are, have a very fortunate situation and and they will be attending this conference uh, um, not because they have some political agenda or they're particularly interested in um, trying to uh, promote the idea of, of bhikkhunis, but simply because they are part of the, the, the Buddhist women's world and they've got something to offer. And so this was discussed at a, a recent meeting that we had of the elders, Dandamrawati, and there was a, a very strong and unanimous, thoroughly unanimous agreement that, that uh, our nuns community should be represented at that conference, although they weren't, in fact, uh, initially invited uh, because they weren't bhikkhunis. They were kind of overlooked. But they're very welcome, and they are going, and uh, and they will have something very positive to offer. So I don't know how much more I can say about how much it's it's valued or represented in the Buddha's teachings. I think really the essence is that that the uh, Buddha didn't differentiate between the men and women when it comes to practice, and and I would say that's really what has to be remembered. And that is, and it's not just the thing of of men and women, but it's also uh, monastics and lay people, young and old, Asian and Western. So long as we don't know how to rest in an awareness that is not male or female, or not Asian or Western, if we don't know how to access that, then there's always going to be struggles. And so, as I said, this applies to all these, the whole world, the whole conditioned world. This is the point, as far as I'm concerned. The whole, the whole point of practice, the entire point of, of practice, is how to remember, how to remember that in which everything else is arising and ceasing. So all of our conditioning, all the stuff... All the stuff, male, female, young, old, healthy, sick, you know, all the stuff. As the Buddha said, it's all impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self. That's not a philosophical 
argument, but that's that's describing that's describing the realm in which there's no freedom. I mean, that's surely the point of any religion, if it's going to be relevant, is that it's going to take us in the direction of freedom. Yeah. I mean, this is. Uh, this is, as I said, the basic religious question. Where does freedom lie? Where is freedom? And and the Buddha didn't differentiate between men and women for this. You know. Freedom doesn't lie in being a man or a woman, or young or old or anything else. And where does freedom lie? And, and so this is, uh, I would say, the important thing, the thing to really focus on, because, as I said, if, until we know how to release all our conditioning, then we feel driven. We're always taking sides in our conditioning, for and against, what I like, what I dislike, what I think of other people, what other people think of me, my aims, my goals my credentials, my improvement or my deterioration in practice, in life and everything else. And yet, if we have practiced these teachings and we can get a feeling for what the Buddha was talking about, I mean, our refuge, our refuge, a place where we, you know, what is a refuge? We say, I go for refuge to the Buddha, I go for refuge to the Dhamma, sarana, uh, buddhang saranang gachami. Uh, gachami means I go for sarana, refuge to the Buddha. And so, a refuge is a place of safety, security. And this is certainly not, this is certainly, I would say, a buddhang saranang gachami, it's certainly not a club membership statement. Say, so, well, I go for refuge to the Buddha because the Buddha is best. But even if we think the Buddha is best, and even if the Buddha is best, just by clinging on to the idea that we belong to the Buddhist club or aligning ourselves with the Buddha or, or talking all about Buddhism or Dhamma, that, that's not the refuge. That's not what the Buddha was talking about. Or the Dhamma or the Sangha for that matter. And this is where I think talking in images can be very helpful. Instead of identifying with all the stuff our gender, our age, our race, or whatever, instead of identifying with all that, what is it that all this is moving through? What is it that knows experience? What is it that hears all the thoughts? Is there a a silence? Is there a silence from which we can hear everything? Is there a perspective from which we can see everything and not be defined by it? I like to think of the the silence behind silence. We can forcibly remove the noise of our mind with will. You can concentrate on a meditation object or you can listen to the sound of silence, you know, one of the meditation objects and and slowly all the the extraneous noises drop away or thoughts. But there can still be a hanging on to this state of silence that I am in or I've arrived at. And that still takes effort. It's still, it's still not freedom because we're having to protect that, we're having to hold on to that, we're having to maintain that. 
And yet, the Buddha did say there's freedom. So is there a freedom whereby we don't have to maintain that? Is there a state that does not have to be maintained? Is there a silence that, that, that's not going to be disturbed by any noise or any, any voice? Is there, a, is there a space that's not damaged or, or interfered with by anything that passes through it? And as I said, this is where the image, like, for instance, contemplating the image of the space of this room, if we use this as a metaphor. Yeah. I've often talked about looking at the space with a shaft of light going through it and, and then you see all the specks of dust floating through that space. Now, if the space is, is awareness, and then the specks of dust, is all, that's all the stuff, all the sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, and mental impressions, all the mental impressions, all the feelings, sensations, memories, hopes, fears, desires, anxieties, tastes, feelings, everything, all of that, that's all dust floating through space. That's, that consciousness, that awareness, that's not touched, by all that stuff and that's not male or female male or female is stuff if we stop thinking if we stop thinking in that silence can we be a man or a woman can we be Asian or Western or young or old successful or failure So I recommend this as a as a practice. We want to do something about we want to do something about remembering what's really important. It's not really important whether we're male or female or young or old or anything else. And what's really important is that we have a perspective, we have a feeling for the spaciousness of life that that means we're not going to be controlled by the conditions. We're not going to be squeezed, crushed or or, or defined by the past or our fantasies of the future. Uh, to me, that really, that really matters. That's really important. That's, that's a really wonderful possibility. And if we want to do something about it, well, one of the things we can do is this contemplation of space. We can actually you know, look and be in a room. And, and you know, like the, the shaft of light is like the, the shaft of light of attention passing through empty space and and we just cultivate this, this image, remind ourselves of this over and over again. Space, remember the space around the objects. Don't just get lost in the objects. It's so easy to get lost in the objects. And so we just make this practical experiment. Don't even have to sit on a cushion, don't even have to have a quiet room. We can just remember, look at the space around the objects, the space around that lamp or the space around the anagaric or the space around the plant, and then there's the plant. There's the plant, and then there's the space around it. And if we, I find if we contemplate this, then it, it gives us a feeling for a bigger, bigger picture. Or sometimes I think of it as the context of all the content. There's the content of our experience, there's a content of life. Limitless variation of content. Beautiful, ugly, agreeable, disagreeable. But then what, what, what is all this happening in? What is it that 
that knows all the content, all the stuff, all the specks of dust, that sees all the specks of dust. Surely that's worth remembering. And that's, again, nothing to do with being male or female or, or being even Buddhist. And I can understand why quite a lot of people don't want to define themselves as Buddhists because you know, there's an intuition, at least, that becoming a Buddhist is not it. I remember Ajahn Chah, there's one of the quotes of Ajahn Chah, and somebody asked him about being an Arahant. Which is better, being an Arahant or being a Bodhisattva? And he said, oh, don't be an Arahant and don't be a Bodhisattva. He says, if you're anything at all, you're going to suffer. Yeah. Well, the Buddha taught was, was don't become anything. That cuts right through it, doesn't it? If we become anything, yeah. You become, you know, I want to become equal. Yeah. I know in the monastic community, there's this whole thing of hierarchy. Well, now I'm at the top of it. It's not such a big issue. <laughs> to admit but I remember when I was at the bottom of it it was a big issue I didn't feel heard I didn't feel appreciated and I made a bit of a problem out of it I think you know there probably was a few things that some of the abbots I lived under could have done about it making it less of a problem I think that's skillful that's useful but that's not the real issue because fighting for equality you know you know, because even if you know, even if you do get equality, but you're attached to the oh, now I'm equal. There's still somebody who feels equal, and they're always on their guard about having their equality challenged. There's no freedom in that. That's not real freedom. You know, being equal is not real freedom. So the silence behind the silence. Remember the first. The very first meditation retreat I did, I was kind of bundled into this thing by some enthusiastic Buddhist friends, and I didn't like organized religion at all, and, and I wasn't inspired by, you know, the monk, I'd already met the monk who was leading this retreat. But I was persuaded and encouraged to, to go on this retreat, and the, the, the monk who was teaching didn't really insist on anything very much, he just said, well, this is, you know... This is what we agree on. We don't talk and we don't eat in the evening. And, and we just you know, do this simple meditation and watching the breath. And, and sit, when you're sitting and then when you're walking, walking up and down. And, and I had been inspired by reading the Buddha's teachings. I thought, well, I might as well give it a go. I'm here. And the amazing thing was that it worked. And I can remember very, very distinctly on the third day of this retreat, I still remember where I was walking out on this road, pacing up and down, and I noticed probably for the first time in my life, at least since you know, the, the brain started functioning, I can remember this suddenly recognizing that there was no talking going on in my mind. There was no noise. And all I was used to was this yabber, this endless kind of manic noise going on all the time in my head, endlessly commenting on everything. Even if it was agreeable, there was somebody commenting on, this is agreeable, this is good, this is great, this is how it should be, and and suddenly I just realized that, oh, there's nothing happening. There's just awareness. That was a beautiful realization. There's just awareness. But then, because of the way my mind works, the question arose, 
But who knows there's just awareness? Because there was still somebody there knowing there's just awareness. It wasn't just awareness, it was somebody having just awareness. But that was a good question to ask, and I don't know who asked it, but that was a very good question to ask. Because what happened when whoever was asked that question, asked it, I wrote another level of silence, which is what, I, you know, as far as I can remember, is the first experience of what I call the silence behind the silence, where you don't have to comment on the silence. And if we can appreciate that level of silence, then a lot of the stuff of life doesn't matter. You know, a lot of the concerns of getting our rights and being liked, being heard, being appreciated. So I'm not, you know, I don't want people to feel that I don't. I'm, I'm dismissing these questions when they are big issues for people. But in, from the perspective of the Buddhist teachings, what's important is to look for, to seek out, to do what we need to do to move towards that kind of freedom that means that we're not defined by our conditioning. We're all conditioned. People come and talk to me and tell me their stories, as you can imagine, and I meet people who think that they're absolutely just amazingly talented people. And they've got no doubts about their gifts, their abilities, and, they, and they're quite sure that I'm pleased to see them. And you know, they just think that I've been sitting there waiting for them to come and visit. <laughs> there are people like that around. You know, really, and, they, and they're sure that I'm, you know, I want to sit there for hours and listen to them talk about all their talents and their achievements and attainments. And then there's other people who, you know, they, 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 they crawl into the room apologizing for disturbing me and taking up, wasting my time, not taking my time, but wasting my time. And they've got totally low self-esteem that they don't think they're, they're worthy of any attention whatsoever. And, of course, everything in between. And probably, well, all of us will fit somewhere in between that. But where's the freedom? You know, just improving our self-image. You know, trying to like ourselves or, or trying to get rid of our conceit. You know, if, we, if somebody skillfully and thankfully reflects back to us our conceit and our arrogance, and we might start, well, we've got to get rid of our conceit. I shouldn't have these, thing, these thoughts about being great or being wonderful. Or I shouldn't have these thoughts about being hopeless and unlovable. Yeah. And so we, you know, we try and make ourselves more lovable or, or less conceited or whatever. But, but all of that is basically just rearranging the furniture and we can do that but we're never going to stop rearranging the furniture it's endless rearranging the furniture then the furniture wears out and you've got to replace it or... but as I understand the Buddhist teaching he was pointing to a freedom which <clears throat> means that it doesn't matter where the furniture is so long as you've got something that's good enough to sit on and it doesn't really matter either what our personality is like what our accents like, what our gender is, what our preferences are. It doesn't really matter whether we're rich or poor. Yes, it does matter if we've got enough to eat, and that's important. You know, the, the Buddha was quite clear, you don't go spouting forth on the, the four noble truths if somebody's hungry. You know, if somebody's hungry, you, you feed them. That's, in other words, we've got to have a good enough level of physical and psychological uh, well-being. But we don't want to mistake 
the Buddha's teachings for being something that's just going to make us feel good about being a uh, happy, integrated personality. And that's, that's, that's not free. So I would suggest that um, what really matters and, uh, and that what the Buddha was really pointing to was finding for ourselves what we need to do to remember what's important. Now, lots of teachers and lots of techniques can help us, can instruct us, can direct us, but they can also actually obstruct us and misdirect us. There is something within us that really wants to understand truth, that really wants to be free. I think that's why we start out on this path. I think that's why all of us get interested in this, this business, because of this thing within us, this dimension within us that, that suspects and intuits that freedom is possible. We hear the Buddha's teaching about inherently adequate reality, of, or however, he didn't use those words, but you know, that which is inherently free and unshakable. Aso kang wirajang kiamang, griefless, dustless, secure. And something within us says, yes, I trust that that is possible. But the thing is, how can we remember that we trust in this reality and not be distracted by all the conditioning? By our failures. You know, it's so tempting to be distracted by our failures. I failed yesterday. I was feeling... I was, it was in the evening, I was really laid back and, and I was feeling, you know, really, really spiritual and <laughs> really inspired and I leave my phone on at night because sometimes people need to ring me out of emergency. And then somebody rang me, I failed. Afterwards I realised that, you know, when you make mistakes like that, you can make something, you can make a big thing out of it. You can really make a person out of it. And say, oh, I failed. And get off on it. You can really get off on being a failure. It's like, it feels like being somebody. I'm somebody. And there's a certain familiarity in that. We feel secure in that familiar somebodyhood. Nobodyhood, being nobody, is not, from the conditioned ego perspective, is not attractive. It's not, it's not attractive to the ego the conditioned personality to be nobody. And so it does take effort to remember that the pull towards being somebody is a calm. Even a happy somebody, a powerful somebody, a rich somebody, a together somebody, a wise somebody, a compassionate somebody. Or as Ajahn Shah said, don't be any somebody. Because if we are anybody, then we're going to suffer. Now this is again not a, a philosophy that to be believed in or argued with or against, but a hint, uh, an intimation maybe, of, of the direction that, that we're encouraged to go towards, whereby we don't try and justify any clinging. The habits we have are towards, you know, fairly justified in our clinging. Condition me feels perfectly at home with it. 
I won't go into all my justified habits here, but there's some there that have been there for 55 and a half years. So they feel very me. And so it's understandable that they feel justified. And the, but that's why we need to make effort. That's the kind of effort we need to make because there is a force, there's a momentum that seduces us into the habit of clinging. And yet every time we cling, we get unhappy on some level, to some degree, because we become somebody. And then as soon as we become somebody, we're going to have to defend, promote, protect it until eventually that somebody that's been born is going to die. And then we'll feel that's the consequence of having clinged to somebody. We've got to endure the death process. So what to do to remember what's important? I think we need to be, we can afford to be, we're allowed to be, we're invited to be. The Buddha invited us to do this. He didn't give a prescription of these are the only things that you can do. In fact, he said anything, anything that accords with the Eightfold Path is Dhamma. So it doesn't matter what it's called. Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, New Ageism, Confucianism, atheism, anything, anything that accords with the Eightfold Path is Dhamma. If it, if it encourages and leads us towards this actual appreciation of that which is inherently free, well then, then yes, that's encouraged. And so we're invited to get creative. We're encouraged to get creative and, and find out what can we do that helps us remember and also helps us recognize where we forget. How we forget. When we forget. So sometimes it's good to actually, you know, I think in this regard, sometimes it's good to keep a notebook, to keep a diary. I periodically keep a, a verbal diary. I like having a verbal diary because um, I don't like reading, basically, even my own diaries. Who was it who used to like reading his diaries? Oscar Wilde, wasn't it? He was used to, like taking his own diaries when he go on a long trip. It was a riveting reading. I don't even like reading my own diaries, but I do like listening to my own. <laughs> but uh, my narcissism aside, I, I do find it's also helpful to make notes of where and when we forget. Where and when we forget, because we forget that we forget, and how and where we forget. So sometimes that's a useful thing, that's a constructive thing to do. So whether you, you, know, you pull out your, your MP3 player, it's got a recorder on it, or whether you uh, make notes, whatever, I think sometimes it's very good just to record. This is the sort of situation that I forget myself in. This is where I get lost. This is how I get lost. I get lost with such and such a person. And so, you know, if I get exhausted, I get lost. You know, then we forget that, and so we keep getting exhausted over and over again. Even though when we get lost, we cling and we become and then we get confused and we get unhappy and then we get lost and we've got to endure the consequence of having been born as this confused, lost, unhappy being until we remember again. Mm. So actually what's wise and what's skillful is to find ways of helping ourselves not get so lost, not forgetting. I find it very interesting that the word for you know, the central, pivotal point of technique or faculty in the Buddhist teachings is sati, Mindfulness, but the etymology of this word is very interesting. That you trace it back to the root, and it actually means to remember. It's the same word as to remember. Being mindful is one aspect of mindfulness: is 
remembering, how to come back and how to remember what matters, what's important, where freedom lies. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Mm -hmm.